Welcome to the Green Shoots podcast by Appleyard Lees, a conversation for those who own, manage or protect intellectual property. Hello, I'm Howard Reed, a partner and patent attorney at Appleyard Lees. Today I'm joined by Terry Instone, a fellow patent attorney and principal associate also here at Appleyard Lees. Today we discuss central patent revocation at the Unified Patent Court, UPC, and compare revocation actions at the UPC with European Patent Office EPO opposition proceedings. What are the key differences between them? Under what circumstances is the UPC's route to central revocation preferable to that offered by the EPO? These are some of the questions we're going to explore today. Terry, hello. Hi, hi Howard. Yes, like Howard said, I've, I've spent a lot of my career as a, well, first as a research scientist and then as a patent attorney, and I, I particularly do a lot of work at the European Patent Office, either defending or attacking patents using the EPO opposition system. And as Howard said, since June, we've had a new opportunity to try to get patents revoked instead of using the, the centralised EPO system. So, Terry, what routes do we have, or did we have available before the 1st of June, before the uh, UPC, the Unified Patent Court, opens its doors, just as to set the scene? Well, we, we always had the opportunity to go to the national patent offices or to the national courts and file revocation actions. But generally speaking, most of my clients were reluctant to do that. The reason being, that, of course, that typically most European patents have been validated in a, a large number of countries. And if you wanted to go and get them revoked in each of those individual countries where the patent had been validated, you'd have to spend an awful lot of time and you'd be operating under jurisdictions that your patent attorney, i.e. me, wasn't necessarily that familiar with. And so you've got a situation where the centralised opposition at the European Patent Office has been a very attractive option because you have a simple revocation action that you can initiate there. It has to be within nine months of the granting of the patent. That's one of the disadvantages of it. But you can do it in your own language. You can do it in English. If there's any problem in terms of the patent being in French or German, the other official languages, the EPO, then you can use interpreters when you actually go to the proceedings, but you can actually do all of your submissions in your own language rather than getting them translated. So the the centralised European opposition procedure has always been extremely attractive to try and clear the way for potential infringers to get rid of a piece of intellectual property that's potentially preventing them from putting their products on the market. Now, the disadvantage of the system is that it can take an awfully long time Terry, thank you. So, just just to summarise that briefly, before the first of June of this year, twenty twenty three, we we had the opportunity to seek revocation, or also known as a nullity action, before the national courts in respect of the national patents that arose out of validation of the granted European patent, and that. Um, opportunity existed before the 1st of June and still exists. However, National Court or National Patent Office can only consider invalidation of the patent of that particular country. It, it cannot look at other jurisdictions. Indeed, if let's say the patent was revoked by a UK court, you probably start, you might start at the UK Patent Office and then you'd appeal that up to the court and it might go up to the, the Court of Appeal and it might go to the Supreme Court. But 
let's say that a decision was taken that that patent was revoked in the UK. Although that decision might be persuasive for other courts around Europe, there's absolutely no guarantee that those other courts would come to the same conclusion. And so you, you couldn't consider that the, the patents in the other states were cleared out of the way and that you could just simply ignore them. There's still a risk that the patent owner could take infringement action against you in those countries. So you'd really want to try and clear the way in all of those different countries. The big advantage of the, uh, the new UPC is that it can revoke the patent for all 17 of the contracting states of the UPC. Admittedly, not for all of the European Patent Convention contracting states, but for all of the ones that have joined the UPC at, at the present time. So, Terry, why would somebody seek or what to revoke before the UPC? And indeed, are there, what, what are the particular advantages other than, for example, the the potential for revocation in 17 states? I suppose the, the first situation where the UPC would be advantageous is if you need to clear the way fairly rapidly, because although the UPC is not really fully up and, well, it's up and running, but we don't know how long cases are going to take and we don't know how long it's going to take to go through the first instance proceedings and the appeal proceedings and how often cases will get appealed and whether indeed there'll be permission to appeal and how that'll work with the UPC. But we expect that it's going to be, the intention was always that it was going to be a very rapid court. We've also got a situation with the UPC where we think that there isn't going to be such a great involvement of expert witnesses. So we're, again, that, that's advantageous in terms of speeding up the process. We can talk about that a bit later. Again, we're talking, we're guessing how things are going to work, but we've got a fairly good from having talked to the to the judges and the um, the people who are going to be running the court as to how it's going to proceed. The other thing is that with the European Patent Office revocation procedure, the opposition procedure, the appeal system before the EPO became much stricter as of 2020. And whereas before 2020, you could, for instance, lose your revocation action at the first instance proceedings and then pile in with new citations and new experimental evidence and maybe some expert witness statements that you could file in appeal and succeed that opportunity is now gone because the appeal procedure is now just an appeal procedure so it's not like the first half of a football match and you're down and you go into the second half of the match and suddenly you can score a few goals and win now the match is over and all you can do is talk about what the referee's decisions were and whether the referee got those decisions right, but you can't put any new players on the field. And and that is the big problem, if you like, at the European Patent Office in that you may find after a few years that you've really got strong evidence that the patent is invalid, but the boards of appeal cannot look at that new evidence because their procedure is highly constrained by these new rules of procedure. And a lot of our clients find that very frustrating. They come to us and say, well, surely we can file this or we can file that. And we're saying, no, nope, actually, we can only rely on what we filed in the first instance proceedings or in our grounds of appeal. And we can't really file anything new at this stage. And so the, the UPC provides a fine opportunity for us to take a case that we may have lost in appeal at the uh, opposition division and board of appeal 
or even just at the first instance, if we've lost and think, well, we're not going to be able to get anything else in, but we've got this new evidence or new citations now that we could use. We could file the revocation action at the UPC and we can file that at any time because we're not constrained by the nine months after grant that an opposition has to be filed in at the European Patent Office. So that's that's one big plus for the UPC that we've got the opportunity of, if you like, getting over the mistakes that we may have made at the EPO by filing the new evidence that we couldn't do or the experiments that we couldn't carry out in time and doing that at the UPC instead. Terry, that's very interesting, you know, particularly thinking about using the UPC potentially after then EPO opposition and appeal proceedings. So what contrast to that, um, if we think about the revocation cases that have already been filed before the UPC, and there are about some seven cases thus far, indeed there are quite a few where the UPC revocation action has been filed within the EPO opposition period, so that first nine months after it, or whilst EPO opposition proceedings are already pending. Have you any comments on that? Well, this this goes to one of the situations that I mentioned earlier, that if you want to clear the way rapidly, then you would want to really get the, the case decided and waiting for maybe five years, six years for the EPO to get its act together and, and give you the result that you want. Is something you may not want to do. So if you really feel that you have a tremendously strong case and that any fool looking at your evidence would decide to revoke the patent, of course, the EPO can't do that, even if they think the evidence is, is bomb-proof and that the patent will eventually get revoked. It still has to grind through that five or six years before you get the decision, whereas the UPC can give you that decision, hopefully, within a year, perhaps with appeal within two years. But then we come to the potential disadvantage in terms of cost, which is that the the cost of just initiating an action at the UPC, uh, a revocation action, I think is about €20,000 compared to maybe a, uh, less than €1,000 at the EPO. Now, okay, you've got your, your lawyer costs, the, the costs of actually running the case. Typically, for um, an action at the EPO, you'd be looking at something like maybe 60,000 to 80,000 for the first instance proceedings, maybe the same sort of figure for the appeal, maybe less, maybe more, depends on how complex the case is. But I think you'd be looking at an awful lot more at the UPC potentially. Again, we, we don't really know exactly how it's going to work and, and how convoluted the proceedings will be and how much work the lawyers are going to have to put in, or, or we're going to have to put in if we're running those revocation actions. But it's likely to be a, a much more expensive game, shall we say, than running the revocation action through the opposition procedure at the EPO. But even with those increased costs appreciating, you're particularly referring to the UPC official fees of, say, €20,000 for revocation and just under €1,000 for um, the opposition proceedings, there's a similar f- amount for the EPO appeal fee. However, given the prospect of an earlier decision, it's likely that these costs will be somewhat insignificant. My understanding is that at least at this stage, the UPC is aiming for first instance decision within 12 to 14 months, which is compares very favourably with the probably closer to... Uh, 
two and a half, three years, even for a relatively fast EPO opposition first instance decision. Just moving slightly, now, one of the things with EPO oppositions and even revocations before national courts or national patent offices, there's always the opportunity, or generally the opportunity, to amend the claims. What will happen before the UPC, Harry, and what interplay might there be between what's going on at the UPC and what's going on at the EPO? Particularly, what claims are being amended and how does that affect claims in other contracting states that are not within the UPC? Essentially, if you have opposition proceedings carrying on at the EPO while the UPC is proceeding, which is a perfect, while the UPC Revocation Act is proceeding, which is a perfectly feasible and reasonable thing to do, and as you said, is actually the situation in a lot of the cases that are currently underway before the UPC, or in a number of them. And you apply to amend the claims at the UPC in order to narrow them to avoid prior art, to avoid revocation. And that's that's a fairly common thing. And in particular, you quite often in, in defending a revocation action or a revocation counterclaim would make conditional amendments. So you'll say, oh, in the event that this claim is found to be lacking in inventive step, then we, we'd like to work on this other claim, which has got a further limitation in it to avoid that piece of prior art that makes it obvious how does that what happens then to the claims that are currently underway in appeal proceedings at the EPO shall we say now the UPC insists that the parties in their proceedings if they make amendments to the claims have to report it to any other courts and that would include the EPO where there are proceedings underway But the rules of procedure of the Boards of Appeal are such that it's virtually impossible to amend your case unless there are exceptional circumstances. So would the fact that the patentee has decided to amend its claims before the UPC, when it could easily have decided to amend those claims earlier in its EPO proceedings, will the Boards of Appeal consider that to be sufficient exceptional circumstance to say, oh, well, yeah, if you hadn't filed the UPC case, you couldn't have amended your claims. But because you did, oh, that's fine. You can amend your claims now. We'll, we'll look at these new claims. That would be very unusual and a, a very peculiar situation, but we don't know how it's going to play out. That That is one of these things that, that has to be done. Uh, and certainly in the national courts, if you've got um, a UK action pending at the same time as a UPC action and you had to notify the UK court that you were amending your claims, then there the the UK would have to publish those claims and there'd be the opportunity for other third parties to oppose the amendment to the claims. And then what would happen if third parties succeeded with that opposition? How would that feed back to the UPC? It's, It's a very interesting and convoluted situation. I mean, my own personal experience of amending claims before the Intellectual Property Enterprise Court a few years ago was was fraught enough, and that was a fairly simple case. So uh, doing conditional amendments before the UPC when you've got other actions pending before the EPO is going to be quite interesting, I think. It'll be interesting to see how the uh, uh, it all plays out. One of the things that I'm slightly concerned about is that a lot of the oppositions that I run trying to get patents revoked at the EPO, I, I do them as a straw person. So Essentially, my my real client is hidden from the EPO and the Boards of Appeal, and they just see my name or Appleyard Leeser's name as the opponent 
And we run these cases so that hopefully the patentee doesn't know who the opponent is. And you may say, well, that, but why, why would you want to do that? Well, of course, the opponent, the, the real client, may want to negotiate with the person whose patent you're trying to revoke, and they may already be under negotiations, or it may be a supplier supplier and supply relationship so that somebody really doesn't want to um, fall out with the person that's providing them with an essential component for the another component that they're making or another, what's the word I'm looking for, for a, for a product that they're making. And so, for instance, you could have a situation where a bottle manufacturer has a patent and you, as a, as a fast-moving consumer goods manufacturer, desperately have to use their bottles and you want to buy them from them, but they can put their price up because of their patent. So you want to knock out the patent to keep the price down and to keep your options open for buying those bottles from somebody else. But you don't want to fall out with them because you need them to supply you with those bottles. And you don't want them to say, well, if you're going to oppose our patent, you know, we'll, we'll sell our bottles elsewhere uh, and throw Teddy out the pram. So it's, it's, it's this idea of the straw person action is quite important. It's certainly very important for, for drugs manufacturers. And there's been a lot of question about whether you can have such a straw person revocation action before the UPC. In other words, and I'll use a bit of Latin, do you have to have locus standi? Do you have to have a valid reason for opposing the patent, which means that you're going to have a financial impact on you personally or you as a legal entity before uh, you're allowed to take a revocation action? Now, I remember one of the first um, opposition cases that I handled when I joined Appleyard Lee's uh, 2013 I'd been a patent attorney for some time before then um, had been launched against a Samsung uh, patent by a German um, and I don't know how to describe it it's essentially a consumer association so it was a German consumer association that was protecting the rights of the consumer um, and it was all about um, DVDs if you remember DVDs before we all went to, to downloading uh, our films, uh, and it was about where the um, translations into different languages or the interpretation into different languages of the of the films was stored on the DVD, and Samsung had a patent that enabled you to reduce the amount of storage on the DVD so that there was more space for film, even though you had multiple languages stored on the on the DVD. Now, would that sort of action? be feasible now at the UPC, given that the Consumer Association is never going to be sued by Samsung, say, for infringing its patent. What, what do you think, Howard? So, yeah, in that instance, there could never be, for example, a counterclaim for infringement. No. Um, now, now as, you know, as, as you mentioned, the option for a straw person revocation action before the UPC has been widely discussed. This stage, there's nothing identifiable in the legislation that would preclude a straw man or straw person opposition, but that doesn't mean that it is not precluded. And I think we're going to have to wait for a test case, so case law should develop, to discover whether or not a straw person revocation action is indeed admissible at the UPC. But yes, there's certainly changes in the character of the proceedings. It also means that you know, if there is a pending 
APO opposition or opposition appeal, it is highly likely that you can then work out who the true opponent is in the case of a straw person, if indeed straw person is not permissible at the UPC. Howard, one of the things I've noticed is that there have been quite a few actions, revocation actions, filed by um, German patent attorneys, uh, even though there are EP opposition proceedings underway. And my understanding of that is that there are constraints on German um, patent attorneys in terms of they can't file revocation actions in Germany until certain time limits have, have passed. Is that right? That is entirely right, Terry, yes. So in Germany, there are indeed limitations as to when a revocation action for a European patent may indeed be filed before the federal court. Particularly, a revocation action may not be filed before the uh, German federal court. So if actually revocation action in uh, Germany, during that time in which a NEPO opposition may be filed, so the first nine months, nor may a revocation action in Germany be filed whilst EPO opposition, and that would include appeal proceedings, are pending. So what the UPC provides, because it doesn't have these limitations as as to when a revocation action may be filed, effectively provides a a, uh, new tool in that you can have these now for the first time, at least for German lawyers and patent attorneys, the opportunity to have parallel EPR position and UPC revocation proceedings, which they've, you know, they've not had similarly. This very much contrasts with the UK, for example, where there are no such limitations. So we may be seeing this to in Germany, for example, to add increased pressure upon the the defendants, that is, patent proprietors, to encourage perhaps earlier settlement. Do you think there's going to be much in the way of a stay of proceedings in these circumstances? I mean, the case that we were involved in, that we had uh, appeal proceedings underway at the EPO while we were doing um, uh, an infringement and revocation counterclaim action in a UK court, and there the proceedings were not stayed because it was felt that they needed to be sorted out before the next two or three years when the appeal proceedings would be sorted out. And so generally speaking, UK courts are quite reluctant to stay proceedings simply because there's something underway at the EPO. What do you think will happen with the UPC? Will they think about the EPO proceedings and maybe go, oh, no, we'll stay until the Board of Appeal has um, decided? I think that's very unlikely, but I'd be interested to know what you think. I think it's also highly likely, certainly at this stage, whilst UPC proceedings are expected to be relatively faster than, say, proceedings before the EPO. I mean, you know, just reflecting back upon current national proceedings, for example, UK courts, then, you know, there is the opportunity for them to stay their proceedings, but generally only do so if a decision, and ideally a, a final decision that is from the Board of Appeal, is imminent from the EPO, but that's highly unlikely. There's certainly no requirement in the, e- the UPC for them to stay proceedings whilst proceedings are pending before the EPO. And, you know, as a new court is likely to seek to forge ahead. In all of this, I think one important thing to remember is that we should not expect decisions from the UPC 
that are materially different from decisions um, that we would expect, say, from the um, EPO based on the on the same evidence. That is, the decisions from the UPC are expected to be relatively predictable based on what is known from, say, EPO opposition and appeal proceedings. But in terms of staying, no, there's no requirement. The UPC wants to uh, build its own portfolio of case law, so I can see them actually forging ahead to uh, actually get decisions published. So this this brings me back to uh, something I mentioned a bit earlier, which is expert witnesses. And as you say, Howard, you would hope and we hope that the UPC and the EPO will be pretty much aligned, that if we gave them the same evidence, we'd get the same result. Now, again, speaking from bitter experience, the influence of expert witnesses on the decisions that UK courts make, and any courts, in fact, that involve expert witnesses with cross-examination, it makes the result very hard to predict. You talk to your clients and say, well, you know, we've, we've got this our expert and the other side's got their expert. But on the day, the judge isn't a technical judge, really, in most of the, of the UK cases and, and in a lot of cases in national courts in, in the rest of Europe as well. And they rely on what the expert witness is saying. So if you have a convincing expert witness, they can often push the decision into a place that you didn't want it. Whereas at the EPO, and as I understand it with the UPC, because we've got technically qualified judges, they're actually experts in the science that's being discussed, they will rely much less on any expert witness evidence. And they'll probably just want written evidence in order to keep the proceedings to be as rapid as possible, rather than spending a day or two days, which we'd have in a UK court, having expert witnesses cross-examined and Sometimes the decision might be that, well, the more convincing expert witness has persuaded the judge in a way that a court that didn't have cross-examination of expert witnesses would decide. So, yeah, what do you think about that, Howard? So, yes. So if we think about uh, before the UPC, then as with EPO opposition proceedings, they're going to be at least two technically qualified members, judges at the UPC, members at the EPO Opposition Division, plus a legally qualified. And it is understood that these technically qualified judges will have sufficient technical expertise so as not to require um, a technical expert. Now, the UPC has the option to bring in a uh, technical expert. It's unlikely in practice that they will do that, more likely to supplement with a Another technical judge, more specifically um, qualified in, in that particular field. Um, although there's still always the opportunity for at least um, technical expert witness or technical expert reports to be provided by the parties. Um, so that's but that's very different, isn't it, Howard, from what what happens, for instance, in the UK, where I have to say that the entire case revolves around the expert witnesses and the cross-examination you know it's very much it's, so. it's very much the barristers uh, looking like uh, perry mason was uh, the tv program when i was a child um but you know a, a, a court drama a courtroom drama rather than a dry examination of written evidence 
um, which is what we get before the EPO. Even even at the hearings at the EPO, we often take along expert witnesses because the clients think, well, you know, our, our, our science expert, if they can explain it to the, the Board of Appeal judges, then, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get it all sorted out. Uh, they're, they're not interested in listening to those experts at all. And very rarely can I persuade them to even consider listening to those experts, even when I've taken them along. This may all be part of, you know, the the greater emphasis on what I call objectivity, say at the EPO and possibly also before the um, UPC, where something that is uh, doc- documentary evidence that's been published, for example, in a journal or a patent, um, is, is taken more at face value than, um, and this becomes a really subjective part, what is the common general knowledge of the skilled person? Yes. So, and that common general knowledge often plays a greater part, certainly in inventive step um, at the UK, in the UK courts and the UK IPO. Um, so, if there were to be a, um, you know, a hin- you know, pivot point on common general knowledge, then having an expert witness before the um, UPC is likely. Um, to favour the party who's able to bring something that is benefits their case, you know, whether it's inventive step or indeed sufficiency. Mm. Yes, yes. I must say, I mean, I'm I'm much happier with um, a court that doesn't rely on the, shall we say, eloquence and, and verbal skills of expert witnesses, because it's very easy for for somebody who's less familiar with cross-examination to simply answer a question and say, well, isn't that obvious? And they answer, well, yeah, I suppose it is obvious. And it's very difficult to persuade a judge that it isn't obvious, even though that isn't the skilled person uh, in terms of the construction of the skilled person as the court is supposed to see them. There's, It's very easy to confuse the um, the real person who's in front of you with the hypothetical skilled person in the field um and and that can be very persuasive in in the uk courts i think so yes i'm much happier with the upc uh, as a potential forum as i'm very happy with the boards of appeal at the epo as, as a forum for discussing uh obviousness and sufficiency uh, in an objective manner rather than a subjective manner so yes i'd, I'd be much happier with with going to the upc i think uh so the UPC would like to provide uh, the certainty that we we know from the EPO. But one thing, and we have mentioned UK variously th- throughout. Um, of course, the the UK is party to the um, European Patent Convention. It's one of the uh, thirty nine contracting states of the uh, the EPC. In contrast, the UK is not. Uh, a member state of the uh, UPC. So a decision of the UPC um, will not extend, at least in terms of revocation, to the UK. Yet we're talking about this, Terry, today. And why is that? Why can we talk about this? Well, why can we talk about the UPC? Well, because oh, because we're all we're, we're qualified to act before it. A, a European patent attorney based in the UK, who's also got a litigation certificate, can request uh, audience rights before the UPC, and many as many of us have done that. 
in order that so we could deal with the opt-out. But we also have the opportunity of acting for our clients before the UPC. So even though we wouldn't be able to revoke a UK arm of a, a patent, a classic European patent, we can certainly act to revoke a UPC or we can act to revoke uh, the validated states of an old European patent uh, in any of the 17 contracting states or all of the 17 contracting states before the UPC. And and you may say, well, what, would you use a UK patent attorney to do that? Um, well, yes, if, if, if the process is, as we expect, going to be very similar to the process before the Boards of Appeal, then in theory, somebody like me should be quite good at, as a uh, an advocate before the UPC. Um, but we'll have to see how all of this pans out. As, as we discussed earlier, the languages that are going to be used, uh, English is going to be used mainly, I think, is that right, at the central court, Howard? Yeah, so proceedings um, are um, by default the in the language of proceedings of the patent when it comes to revocation. Um, there's always the opportunity to, if by agreement at least, work in a second language and indeed every division that's um, central as well as local divisions and national courts has English as a second language that may be chosen by the, the parties. So at least then for um, international either proprietors or um, or and or uh, claimants in revocation case, it's possible to act um, in English. It's made me think, I mean, getting ready for this has made me think about quite a few things uh, in relation to actions before the European Patent Office and actions before the UPC for revocation. And it'll be interesting to see how the next two years, let's say, pan out as we see how these actions that are proceeding at the UPC are resolved and we, and we see how how and when expert witnesses are involved and whether the results that come out of what we expected um, and how how many of us actually get involved in running cases ourselves or whether we'll be using experts though I don't think there are any experts at the moment because of course nobody's run a case before the UPC so we're all we're all potential experts at this stage but uh, yeah interesting times ahead I think Terry thank you so much indeed I really enjoyed talking with you today and if anyone has any questions about EPA opposition appeal proceedings, about national revocation actions, or indeed about the UPC, the Unified Patent Court, please do get in touch either via the website or LinkedIn. We really look forward to exploring more with you. Terry, thank you. Bye, Howard. Thanks for listening to the Green Shoots podcast by Appleyard Leeds. If you have a question or issue you would like our IP specialist to discuss on the podcast, then tweet us at Appleyard Leeds or email us at ip at appleyardleeds.com.